this morning, turning your Bible to Matthew chapter 24. We want to take a look at these two significant watershed chapters that Jesus spoke. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And again, we are not going to be giving that a full treatment, but we're going to hit some of the the highlights of these two chapters and sort of bring some perspective as we uh, exit the book of Revelation um, for what the Lord spoke through this section of Scripture, through the words of our Lord to us. So Matthew chapter 24, we're actually going to pick it up in verse 3 and read down to verse 14 just to get ourselves started. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And as we attempt to take sort of a a jet tour overview of these two incredible chapters, uh, would you just speak to us and bring all these things into focus as we consider what you have to say about the end of the age, the end of the world, as we know it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've studied the book of Revelation, I mentioned last week that we started in March. We actually started in February. And as we have gone through that, I hope if you've been here for the study, that you've uh, sort of caught a sense of what the Lord is doing. God has laid out for us a master plan. And this master plan really can only be understood by those who are true believers in Jesus Christ. Going back to the book of Daniel chapter 9, and if you're taking notes this morning, this is another passage I would commend to you. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, we have what's called the 70 weeks of Daniel. And this is where the Lord, through the prophet Daniel, lays out for us what will happen in the last days. And so we're not going to go through that this morning, but in that passage of Scripture, he spells out these 69 weeks and then this 70th week, and then there is an implied gap uh, in between the 69th and the 70th week. The 69 weeks are are a literal fulfillment that have already happened uh, through the nation of Israel and through uh, prophecy itself. And then this gap that's in between is what we call the church age. And if we were going to draw a timeline this morning and put it up on the screen, you would see these 69 weeks, these 483 years, as Daniel prophesied, that would have taken place already. And then at the end of that time, the church age begins. That's the time when Christ uh, came, lived his life on the earth, uh, was 
killed for our sins and was buried and then resurrected. And then the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and thus began what we know as the church age. And then this 70th week, this last seven-year period, begins when the time of the tribulation begins. And so that's what Jesus is speaking of here this morning in Matthew 24 and 25. And so this was very important for not only the uh, Israeli nation to understand, but it's important for us as the church, for us as believers to understand. So when the church age began, as we understand it, when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and the church was formed, and Jesus, of course, was ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come, and as the Holy Spirit came, he would communicate to his disciples, both the ones who were with him in that day and all of those who would yet come, that they would have the Holy Spirit to lead and guide them into all truth. And as the Holy Spirit came, he would empower the church to preach the gospel. Now remember with the nation of Israel, that God had, came upon, had come upon them and his temple was gathered, not only built as, not only as a place to worship, but that his people would gather together and as they worshiped, they would then take the good news of God, of Yahweh, of the covenant God, out to the world. And the Jews were supposed to evangelize the Gentiles. But what happened during the time of Jesus, and he brought all this clearly into focus, and if you turn back a page and read chapter 23, you'll see where Jesus is chiding the religious leaders for not doing their job in taking the gospel out to the world, the gospel of the kingdom the gospel of the Old Testament, the good news that God is real and that he has shed his love for all people to know. But now Jesus comes and says, okay, the, the, the nation of Israel, my people, have not done their job. Now God is bringing the church into focus and he's going to save the Gentiles sovereignly and divinely through his work on the cross. And of course, his work on the cross is for all people, not just for Gentiles. It is for Jews, obviously. But now... The gospel comes to and through the Gentiles, and that's what the, the story of the book of Acts is about from Acts, from Acts chapter 10 forward. And now the gospel goes out through the church to all reaches of the world. And so now we come to the time in the, the, the history of the Jewish nation where Jesus is now speaking here in Matthew 24 and 25. And in Matthew 24, he's giving a sort of a prophetic description of what's going to happen in the time leading up to the tribulation. And then he's going to talk about not only the Jewish nation, but also the church in chapter 25, about how they are to continue to be ready for his coming. And what does it mean to be ready for his coming? So focusing our attention for a moment on chapter 24 of uh, Matthew... In verse 1, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus, of course, was prophetically speaking of A.D. 70 when Titus Vespasian would come into Jerusalem and wreck the city of Jerusalem, and the temple itself would be torn down. And this temple would not just be torn down, it would be decimated. It would be completely and utterly destroyed. So as he sat there, verse 3, describing these things on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so here's what Jesus says 
as he begins to relate this to them. Now, you could probably block this out and say in verses 4 through 14, he's describing what could be called the beginning of the tribulation. So in verse 4, he says, take heed that no one deceives you. This is the section that we just read. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And then he speaks of the wars and the rumors of wars. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations. And so as the disciples have received the gospel, and as they are now going out to take the gospel to the world, he's saying in that time leading up to what we now know, looking back in history, was A.D. 70, in that 40-year or so time period between when Jesus spoke these words and that happened, that the, the gospel would go forth, but people would begin to hate the disciples of Jesus. And as they would hate the disciples of Jesus, that false prophets would rise up and they would begin to deceive people and they would begin to say that they were the Christ. Remember, the Jewish people were looking for the Messiah, but the Messiah they were looking for was not the Messiah that Jesus was. They were looking for that political Messiah. They were looking for the one who would deliver them from the hand of oppression, both politically and governmentally and, and all of that. But that'll come later as we, as we discovered when we studied the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes and sets up his millennial kingdom and then ushers in the eternal kingdom at the end of the thousand year reign. But until this time, Jesus is speaking these words saying, these things are going to happen. And during that time leading up to AD 70, they did happen. But you see, prophecy usually has a double meaning. It has a near and a far fulfillment. And there was the near fulfillment that happened in their lives leading up to A.D. 70. But now as we approach from our vantage point, this time when the Antichrist will come on the scene, these th same things will continue to happen that Jesus spoke of here to these disciples. And he says uh, in verse 13 and 14, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. In the first century, under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really in the first 30 years of the history of the church, the book of Acts covers this, the, the people of God, the church of God was empowered to go out uniquely and divinely and sovereignly by the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to all of the then known world. And they did it. The, the book of Acts chronicles this history for us. It proves to us that men and women under the, the filling and the anointing and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can go forth and preach the gospel. And in that gospel power and that Holy Spirit power, people are reached in the name of Christ. And so that's a foreshadowing for us. Now what's happened in the 1900 years since uh, the end of the first century to today? The church has certainly been here. We've had the gospel. We've taken that out. But have we been as effective in 1900 years as the early church was in the first 30 years? That's something that we should ask ourselves. And so he's saying here as we approach this time, which is the time of the tribulation, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So there is something about the preaching of the gospel. There is this thing that Paul refers to in the book of Romans in chapters 9, 10, and 11 as until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that involves both the preaching of the gospel to the entire world, and it also involves, uh, there's a certain number we believe, we don't know what that number is, that when the last Gentile believes, 
God will say time is up and that it's time to go and to get my people. Well, as we come into the middle section there, beginning in verse 15 down to verse 22, we believe that this, <coughs> excuse me, is referring to that midpoint of the tribulation. So if you look there with me, beginning in verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he goes on to relate here, as we've just studied in the book of Revelation, that when this abomination that causes desolation happens, when the Antichrist who inks that seven-year treaty uh, with the nation of Israel, and when he brings and ushers in world peace, halfway through that period, he will violate the treaty. He will go into the temple to the most holy place because the temple will have been rebuilt. And we've talked about all this as we've gone through the last few months. And then he will walk into the most holy place and he will do what he's always wanted to do. Remember, we've looked at all those scriptures about how Satan, the origin of Satan and how he fell from grace in heaven. And in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we've read about the fall of Satan and the I am statements. You know, I will make myself like the most high God and how he would exalt himself. And then here on this day, the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of, when he walks into the most holy place and he declares himself to be God and he orders the world to worship him as God. This ushers in what we know as the midpoint of the tribulation or the great tribulation. See, the tribulation begins uh, whenever day one of year one happens. But on that midpoint day, now it ushers in the great tribulation. And this is when God will begin to pour out his wrath in fullest measure. And that's what we see as we read through the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments and all those things that we looked at in those three sections of judgments when we went through the book of Revelation. And so the abomination of desolation happens. The Antichrist walks in and declares himself to be God. And then Jesus warns uh, the people who were living at that time, flee uh, in Judea, uh, flee to the mountains and let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And so what he's saying is that the wrath of God and that th this great world struggle is going to break out and that those who are here who are legitimate believers at that time, the tribulation saints and those Jews who have the, the wherewithal to understand this, that they should, they should run, they should hide, they should flee. Because as he says in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. There shall be a time of tribulation, of wrath, of difficulty such as never been seen and then verse 22 and unless those days were shortened no flesh would be saved what does he mean by that most people believe referring to God has chosen to limit it to only three and a half years what if God had allowed it to be much longer we've seen just throughout world history that when wars last for for many years it brings such decimation to the planet to people and here he's saying this will be global. Most of our wars up to this time have been local. They've been within tribes or within nations. This will be a global event. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. 
And then beginning in verse 23, we see this end period of the tribulation being described. And then if anyone says, <clears throat> says to you, look, here is the Christ, and there do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So all of these things Jesus is speaking to prepare uh, the nation of Israel as well, well as the church to understand what would happen in these last days. And so we know that in these last days, many false Christs will come. Now, as we lead up to the time of the tribulation, that's true. But certainly in our age, in our time, uh, we've seen this happen, haven't we? People who rise up and who proclaim themselves to be the Messiah. They proclaim themselves to be God. And I believe that these people are only foreshadows of what is to come. This has always been accompanied with deception. But this deception that's happened to this point in time in our history has always been somewhat localized. There's only been a few people, a few hundred or maybe even a few thousand people. But in the grand scheme of things, it has not really affected that many people. But in this situation, when the Antichrist comes, when he truly begins to deceive people, again, it will be a global deception. And then he says in verse 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Referring to that time known as the second coming at the end of the tribulation. Then down in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other and so this is a time in the, at the second coming when Jesus himself will come and gather his elect which uh, the elect usually uh, in these passages referring to Israel refers to the Jews and this is a sign which we'll read in a moment that refers to how God is not yet finished with Israel. God has not put Israel on the shelf, and Israel will be recalled. They will be sort of, in a sense, awakened from their slumber as their Messiah reveals himself to them in such a way that they can understand. Then you come to verse 32, and if your Bible has uh, headings or subtitles, it probably says the lesson of the fig tree. And as Jesus often did, he used parables, he used images and illustrations to relate to people, especially the nation of Israel, truths or uh, principles that would happen to them from the word of God, from uh, prophecy. And the fig tree in the Old Testament is typically used to refer to the nation of Israel. So here in verse 32, let's, let's read this together. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. They listen to that and they say, yeah, you're right. That, that's what happens when the trees bloom. It's spring and now summer is, is coming. And then he says, so you also, 
When you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So he's saying to them and ultimately to us, so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. So when we see all of these signs taking place, and for those who would be alive during the time when the tribulation is about to happen, as we see all these things lining up, as we see these birth pangs begin to happen in the heavens and in the earth, when we begin to see the increase of people proclaiming themselves to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, when we see all these things happening with greater rapidity as we approach this time called the tribulation, Jesus is saying these are signs for the generation that sees those to understand that the time is near. And when he says in verse 34, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. There's a couple of different uh, points of interpretation on that. Uh, Some say that this is strictly referring to the Jews living during that time, that's a possibility. But there are also those who say that when that the generation that's living at the time that all these things begin to happen and they see all these signs happening, then they will be the ones, that generation will be the ones that, that sees the fulfillment of the coming of the, the tribulation into the great tribulation and then, of course, the second coming of Christ. And then in verse 35, he says something that we shouldn't miss, and this is to reinforce his word and his truth. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus is saying very clearly and very succinctly for all who would hear, whatever he says will happen. Everything he says will come true. Now it's at this point I would interject for our understanding, and I would love to be able to have time to do this, but in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, let me give you sort of an overview of those three chapters. Those three chapters are incredibly important for us to understand that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. In Romans chapter 9, Paul outlines Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, and he points out their unbelief in the plan of God. So Romans chapter 9, you can go read this for yourself. Paul outlines Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the nation of Israel's unbelief in the plan of God. And you see, this is why when Jesus came, and then um, in John chapter 1, he says that Jesus came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. And then Paul, later in in the book of Acts, goes and takes the the gospel to the Gentiles because the Jews kept rejecting the gospel. So Paul is referring to that in Romans 9. In Romans 10, Paul says, Israel needs the gospel, and the gospel is for everyone. Israel needs the gospel, and the gospel is for everyone. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says, God always has a remnant. The Gentiles were grafted into Israel, and God still has a plan that's yet future that will be fulfilled for Israel. So the future of the olive tree that he refers to here is Israel. And it's interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, but their minds were blinded for until this day, speaking of the Jews in synagogue, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. In other words, he's saying 
the Old Testament can never be understood without the New Testament. The New Testament is like a giant flashlight that shines on the Old Testament and it makes it all plain and clear. It brings it all into focus. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And then in verse 36 of Matthew 24, he says, looking at that time when Jesus would return, this is not speaking of the rapture, but of that day, the second coming of Christ, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, if you want to read that story, go back to Genesis chapter 6 and read the story of what happened in that day. Noah had come as a preacher of righteousness. And if you read in the chapters beforehand, especially Genesis chapter 5, you'll see the debauchery of mankind. You will see what happened in the world. You'll see what happened in society. And if you go read Genesis chapter 5, you will probably be, hopefully, shockingly made aware that this is exactly the same kinds of things that are going on today in our society. And primarily those things center around sexual perversion. So this is what led ultimately God to raise up Noah and his family and to build the ark and then to prepare for the time when the rains would come. And then it says here in Matthew 24, as Jesus himself is explaining Genesis 6 to us, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So when Noah went in, that was a sign. That was a sign that things were about to happen. And we know from reading this amazing story that God took Noah and his family into the ark. And of course, Noah followed God's protection and provision, his instructions, and he went in and he took all the animals and God himself sealed up the outside of the door. And then the rains came and they did not know until the flood came and took, all them, took them all away. So also will the coming of the son of man be. In other words, he's describing a condition leading up to that day when everyone will essentially be asleep. Everyone will essentially not be looking for the coming of the Lord. And the interesting thing is, Jesus is speaking this to his people, the Israelis. And I believe as well, by implication, he's speaking this to the church. Listen to what one commentator had to say about this section of scripture here. What kept the people from listening to Noah's message and obeying? What was it? It was the common interests of life. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. They lost the best by living for the good. It is a dangerous thing to get so absorbed in the pursuits of life that we forget that Jesus is coming. And then in the balance of the chapter here in Matthew 24... He begins describing what it will be like as people are not being aware. They're, they're sort of asleep and they're not watching. And he says in verse 42, watch therefore for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So Jesus himself saying the same things that he said at the end in Revelation chapter 22 as we looked at this last week. Jesus is saying, he said it there and he's saying it here. Be ready. 
be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour in which you do not expect. Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master made rule over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a harsh and a hard passion of Scripture, but when he speaks here of the evil servant who says, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants, the thrust of what he's getting at here is that when a person begins to think that God doesn't mean what he says, when we don't believe in the truth of his word, when we don't believe that he, if he says he's coming back and that we should be watching and be ready, and if we're not watching and if we're not ready, then we effectively become like this evil servant who in unbelief says, well, you know, who knows when he's really coming? I mean, listen to what Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> he begins to, to write here, we could read the whole chapter, but in verse 4 he says, uh, uh, verse 3, knowing that scoffers will come in the last day and walk according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. And listen to what he says in verse 5, for this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water, referring to Noah, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So as Peter writes those words, I believe he's uh, illuminating or providing, in a sense, commentary on what Jesus said here about this evil servant who is not watching, he's not prepared, he's not ready. Now, Paul wrote a similar thing in Romans chapter 13 that also illuminates this passage. He says in Romans 13, verse 11, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Paul's writing to the church, okay? Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So what's he saying? He's saying in, in, in not so many words, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be ready for when Jesus might come back. In other words, we are to have an attitude similar to this. It's like you're in your house and you're waiting for a delivery to come. And you don't know if the delivery is coming today or tomorrow or the next day. You're just not sure. You just know that it's coming. Okay, you don't have the app that, you know, Amazon's coming and it's going to be there in 20 minutes. You don't know that. Okay, you got to put that out of your mind. You just know that a package is coming. 
And unless you're home to receive it and sign for it, you're not going to get it. They're not going to leave it. And so you have to be there. You have to be ready. You have to sort of have your ear out listening for the sound of the truck. You have to be ready, you know, be uh, waiting for that person to come so that when they come and deliver it, that you can be ready to sign for it. You've got your pen ready. You're, You're in a state of readiness. And that's the kind of idea here that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, being ready for his coming. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 25 as we continue this. And then Jesus gives a parable known as the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. So in Matthew 25, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took um, their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their lamps or in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go yourselves to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is an informative and a troubling parable all at once, isn't it? Let's sort of take this uh, just in a few sections here. Now, five of these virgins were wise and five were foolish. The ones who were wise were told in verse 1, or in verse 3, those who were foolish took no oil, but the wise took oil in their lamps and their vessels with their lamps. Now, if we want to just take a moment here and maybe spiritualize it just a bit, which I'm not very fond of, but I think it makes some sense here. Oil usually refers to the Holy Spirit. And as you look in Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 4, that is precisely what the oil refers to as he talks about that prophecy of the two olive trees who were pouring into the menorah to constantly feed the light of the presence of God. So if we look at this from that point of view, uh, those who had the oil with them and their their lamps were full and they had spare oil, this to me sort of speaks of a person who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit is obviously a person who is saved. So a saved person who is filled with the Holy Spirit is watching for the coming of the Lord. And uh, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. So, yeah, okay, They, they were all tired, they all slept. But when they heard his voice, when the call came, when, when the, the cry went forth and said, hey, the bridegroom is coming, verse 6, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and, and those who were foolish, they weren't ready. Their lamps had been burning. When it says trimming the wick, it doesn't say, mean that they were lighting it. It means they were trimming it and getting it ready. And if you have an old-fashioned oil lamp, you know what this is like. 
you have to trim off the dead burnt part so that the oil can continue to flow and the flame, the light, can continue to be provided. And the foolish said, oh, you know, we weren't prepared. Will you share your oil with us? And the wise said in verse 9, uh, no, you've got to get your own oil. That makes sense. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, let us in. And he answered and he said, I do not know you. What does this tell us? And I believe by implication, here's what it tells us. That there will be people in the last days, and I believe there's a parallel in this to the, the letters to the seven churches, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I believe that this is speaking to the fact that those believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit and looking for the coming of the Lord, well, they're, they're going to be ready. They're watching and waiting. They're ready for Jesus. But I think that there is this deception that comes upon people, and I've seen it all over the country, where that because people go to church, they think they're saved. And I'm not saying that believers can lose their salvation. I don't believe that for one second. I don't believe there's a shred of evidence to support that. But I will say this, that there are some who think they're believers. And how do we know? Well, a believer, a person who proclaims or professes to be a believer, but who does not have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us at salvation. But I also believe that Scripture shows us through the book of Acts that there is this additional experience where the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Paul evidenced this in places like in Acts 19, where he got to the city of Ephesus, there were believers there, and he says, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, well, we, don't, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul speaks to them about the Holy Spirit, and then they receive that anointing or that filling of the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other study for another time. But all that to say that those who weren't true believers, this is my understanding of the passage, you know, they didn't have the oil, they weren't ready and so when the time came, there were people who weren't ready. Now, if you'll hold that thought and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 and the letters to the seven churches. And you come to verse 14, which is the lukewarm church, which is the church of Laodicea. In verse 15, he says, as, he, as Jesus is speaking to this church, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Here's the question as we read what we just read in Matthew 25, and we read what we read here in the lukewarm church. The question is, when Jesus says that those who are lukewarm, that he would spew them out of his mouth, is he speaking of those believers who just don't have a reward in heaven, and that's a possibility, or is he speaking of those who perhaps are attending church, if you will, but who are not saved? They think they're saved because they go to church, but they have never come into a personal relationship with Christ. They've never repented of their sins. They've never believed in Christ. They've simply come to church. In other words, they're religious. And I think this is worthy of consideration because he says here, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. So for those believers, if you will, who are asleep, and who are not filled with the Spirit of God, then we should be aware, we should be concerned. But for those who think they're believers, but who are self-deceived, they have an even greater consideration to take into account. Now, how do we know if we're saved? Well, the Word makes it very clear. If we've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ... And if we've put our faith and our trust and our hope in him, and if we have repented and turned from our old way of life, our old way of self-sufficiency, our old way of thinking, and if the, the Holy Spirit of God has come into my life at salvation, as he has for every believer, then this is all pointing to something very real in our lives that we need to take note of in light of the study of biblical prophecy, in light of the study of the book of Revelation. And here's what it is. The best evidence, the best witness for a changed life is a changed life. Am I a different person since I have professed my faith in Christ than before? In other words, the old saying, and I, I heard this many years ago, and I don't know who said it, but the saying is, if you were put on trial for being a believer in Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? In other words, is my life markedly different because I say that I believe in Jesus and because I believe that the Holy Spirit has come into my life? Is there an evidence that I am a, a son or a daughter of Jesus? That's what all of this is pointing to. The idea of being ready for his coming means that I believe his word. It means I believe that what he says is true. It means that I've put my faith, my, faith, my hope, my trust in him. And being filled with the Spirit means I am relinquishing the old life. And as the scriptures say, I've died to my flesh, I've died to myself. I take up my cross daily and follow him. Paul says in Galatians, I die daily so that we may follow Christ. In other words, for us, there needs to be something in our lives that when we wake up in the morning, that there is something within us that says, God, help me. God, fill me. God, I love you. I want to go through this day aware of your presence, conscious of your being with me. And I want you to control my life. I want you to fill me with your love. I want my life to be different because you are with me. This is what Christmas is about, is it not? Emmanuel with us. God with us. He didn't just come to be with us in the manger so that we can have Christmas and give gifts. He came to be in our hearts. He came to be with us in the most intimate, personal way. The with us part of the gospel is with us. It's in us so that we might be changed. 
And here's the question for us this morning. Am I changed? Are you changed? Are we changed? Or are we like this lukewarm church? Or are we like, as it says here in Matthew 25, are we like the unwise virgin who is not ready, we're not looking, we're not prepared? Are we like the evil servant who has not taken Jesus at his word? Are our lamps filled with oil and do we have oil in reserve? Meaning, you know, listen, I leak. I sin. I, I hurt my relationship with God by sinning and doing my own thing. But as a believer, we have this sort of ebb and flow in our relationship with God just like we do in any other human relationship, right? We have good times with our spouses and not so good times. We, we sin and then we're, we're filled with love. And in our relationship with God, it's the same way. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about the ebb and flow of our relationship. He's talking about those who are truly believers and who aren't. You see, it's so important to make that clear for ourselves. Peter even goes so far as to say in his epistle, make your calling and your election sure. Make sure that you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, but you would say, well, my life doesn't have a lot of evidence, then Here's what you do. You get into his word. You get on your knees. You fall before God. You stick your nose in this book and you pray and you say, God, fill me with your love. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And here's another way of thinking of it. When we talk about being filled with the Spirit of God, abounding in the realm of the Spirit, meaning what does this book tell me about what the life controlled by the Holy Spirit looks like? Is there love in my life? Am I marked by love? You see, Paul says in Galatians 5 that love is the primary fruit of the Spirit. And as I understand the passage, as he goes on to say, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, I understand the rest of that to be adjectives or identifiers describing what that love looks like, describing the quality of that love. So being filled with the Spirit, as I understand it, is synonymous with saying, I'm filled with love. And that love looks like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And any of those areas I'm struggling in in my life, they're just an indication that it's my struggle with the Spirit. But God is promising us, he's telling us through his word, that we can have that kind of life that's marked by love, which means it's marked by the Holy Spirit. And if we are marked by the Holy Spirit and if we are filled with love and the world is seeing us and they think love, and they think joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, then there's a witness. And that means there's a mark. That means that people see the difference in our lives. Amen? So these passages, Matthew 24 and 25, as they point to all the prophecies in the end times, you see, all of this is for what? It's to point us to Jesus Christ. And it's to make sure we are ready so that when he comes, when his glorious appearing comes, Titus speaks of it that way. He says, all who look for his glorious appearing, we are looking for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And that's our hope. And so we're living for that. We're like, we're at the door watching for that delivery man to come. That's our attitude, our attitude of expectancy. And we believe that what he says is true. We believe that when we see these letters in red, that it's going to happen. Jesus said, every word I speak will happen. So this morning, 
just borrowing a verse from Peter. He says, let me stir you up by way of reminder that that's what these things are about. As we finished our study in Revelation, as we conclude with all this this morning, are you stirred up? That was my goal for this. It wasn't to do what I usually do. It was just to stir you up. Take that giant ladle and stir it in, in the pot. Break the crust off the top. You ever cook soup? You know how you just leave it on the stove for a while and you come back and there's a crust on the top? You've got to break that crust. And you want to mix it in. You want it to be homogeneous. You want it to be mixed in so that it's ready, so that it's a pure mixture. And so this morning for our lives, are we stirred up? And I hope you're stirred up. And I pray that the Holy Spirit has ministered to you. And I pray that you will seek the Lord and that you will be filled with his spirit. I don't know how many of you have been following the stories in the news. Christian comedian John Christ, everybody heard about him? I mean, I'm a funny guy, right? But out on the road by himself, got messed up. All the sexual stuff he got involved in. And I was reading an article in the morning that this news broke by Ed Stetzer. I really like him. I feel like he's a prophetic voice in the church today. And he said, you know what? The world has seen enough of this kind of thing. And he even said, and Ed is not very, if you read him, Ed, Ed Stetzer, he's not really known for being you know, flamboyant. I mean, he's just like a solid, stable voice. But he even said, he said, I, he said, I honestly feel like the church of Jesus Christ is being purged. That the faults, the leaven is being purged in these last days. And I see that Jesus is getting his church ready. His, his bride is becoming pure. His garment, her garments are being made white. And we see the bride coming down the aisle and she's in her white garments. How many of us today in today's society look at that and think that she's truly pure? I mean, there's definitely those cases that are, but you see, it's supposed to be a symbol that never loses its, its reality, that the bride is white, that she is pure. And how are we made pure? It's by the blood of Christ. He said all throughout the book of Revelation, he talked about how our garments are to be made white, that we are to be made ready. Th these images are all over the Bible if you read it. Zechariah, he talked about again in chapter 4, he says, that the high priest's garments, he says, take those garments off of him and give him the white garments, the garments of the priest. Take off your filthy garments. And so whatever the filth is in our lives, and it can be as simple as lying, cheating, stealing, or it can be as bad as what John Christ was exposed for, whatever it is, Jesus wants his church to be purified. And the worries and the cares of the world, a parable of the sower, Matthew 13, what happened in the third soil where the most believers live? It's the worries and the cares of the world choke out the fruitfulness of the word. That's where we live. But he wants us to be soil number four, where the seed takes root and sprouts up and gives a bounty, 30, 60, and 100 fold, so that others may, may enjoy and, and eat and prosper. God has desired that his church would be like that fourth soil, that the word of God would would just bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold that others might see and come and hear. You see, there's the image again. 
It's the image of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the image of the fruitfulness of the Word. You see, from God's point of view, it's all the same. And He wants us to be so in love with Him and so filled with Him that our lives are marked, and there's no question. You see, there should be no question. And, and I, I fear, to be honest, that, you know, those that I've worked with in the world, if, if somebody went to them and said, hey, did you know that Dean's a Christian? They would go, huh, really? Huh, never knew that. Then something's wrong. Not because I went up and I wear the shirt, I have the t-shirt, hey, I'm a Christian. But because there is a quality to my life that's marked by the Holy Spirit who bears testimony to the word of God. You see, that's what we need. Amen. Lord, that's our desire this morning. We know that you've stirred us up. And so, Lord, as we go forward in these days, we we walk out of here, Lord, not under condemnation. That is not the desire. But to be stirred up, that this would be a time of just saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I don't know where I got off course, but I want to get back on course this morning. Lord, fill me with your love. Today, Lord, every day, give us this day our daily bread. Fill me afresh with your spirit. Let me be marked by the truth of your word, by the reality of love, by the fruit of the spirit. And Lord, help me to remember just to be ready because we do not know the day or the hour at which you might come. And at this point for us, the next event on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church and we want to be ready to meet you in the air. And Lord, for those who may have realized this morning they have never really entered into that relationship with you, then we ask you in this moment that it would be a holy moment for them where they come to you and they they just simply say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I turn from my sin to follow you. I want that love. I want that forgiveness. I want to be marked by Jesus. And Lord, begin to do that work to conform us to the image of Christ that we might increase, that we might decrease, excuse me, that you might increase. Lord, the world needs light. All we can give is darkness. But use us as your vessels that light might flow forth from our lives. We love you, Lord. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand and worship as we go?